This is an exciting story today, and uh, all the, the stories in the Bible are very meaningful, aren't they? And I hope you're enjoying some history. We, last week we, we uh, studied Joshua, a story out of Joshua, when the people were coming into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and God moved in miraculous ways. It's a story in history, and uh, God helped the people, spoke to the people, led the people parted or it really just stopped the waters of the Jordan River so that they could go through into the promised land and we saw him move in miraculous ways. Well now, today we're going to fast forward several hundred years to the last, uh, Joshua was the first of the history books in the Old Testament and the book of Esther is at the end and I just want to fill you in real quick on some history. So after Joshua, they conquer the land, they, the land is divided between the 12 tribes of Israel, but after Joshua died, there was uh, a time of declension in the, the people did not always follow, and they would disobey God, and enemies would come against them, and then God would raise up judges, and they would deliver them, you know kind of that period. Finally, the people say, we want a king like all the other nations, and the first king was who? King King Saul, that's right. So King Saul was chosen. After King Saul came King David. And after King David, King Solomon, his son. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided into the northern tribes. The ten of the northern tribes kind of revolted and went their own way. They had their own king. Their own capital was in Samaria in the north. But two of the tribes, Benjamin and Judah, stayed in, in the south there. They kept the identity of Judah, with Jerusalem as the place to worship. And the northern tribes never really served God. The kings, all of them were evil. They never walked wholeheartedly with God. And God sent prophet after prophet. No, don't do this. Repent. Turn to me. Don't serve these other gods. But they wouldn't listen. And God sent uh, Assyrians to, to capture them in 722 BC. Many were carried away. A few were left in the land and other Assyrians populated the land. Some of them intermarried and that was the beginning of the race known as the Samaritans, uh, which you find in the Bible. That's one of the reasons they were hated in Jesus' day some 400 years later. They were kind of the half-breeds. They had intermingled with the Gentiles. The southern kingdom did a little better and some of the kings followed the Lord, but a lot of them didn't. There was a few good kings that had a heart and they would set reform, so they lasted a little longer, but the same thing happened to them. And in 586 BC, God had to judge them. And Babylon came in under King Nebuchadnezzar and deported the people away. Some, you know some of the figures that were deported out of that. Uh, you're going to hear of one of the guys today, but Daniel and some of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those guys were taken away and taken to Babylon to serve. God had told them that through the prophets that that was going to last 70 years, but in 70 years they would be able to come back. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Babylon was conquered by a, a kingdom called Persia. And the king of Persia, Cyrus, issued an edict allowing Jews to return back to their land. But only a remnant did that. It's been 70 years. Many of them were established and some of them were su still under subjugation to the Persians. So the vast majority of the people are still in Persia. Okay, And this is where the book of Esther comes in during that time period. If you wanted to read about some of those who came back, you can read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that tells you kind of the story of the people who came back. So we're up to today. It's a, up to today's story. It's about 465 BC. You with me? Okay, we're ready to go. So the story of Esther in the Old Testament. It begins by uh, telling the story of King Ahasuerus. I had to practice his name. <laughs> And somebody said to me after, every time you said that, I wanted to say, God bless you. 
Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes. Your Bible might have him enlisted as Xerxes, but uh, his name is Ahasuerus. So I'm going to begin reading the book of uh, Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, six months this is going on, festivity after festivity, and that's not solid obviously, but festivity after festivity, schedule after schedule, each week there's some kind of showing off his glory, 127 provinces, Ethiopia to India, over It says, and when those days were complete, when the six months were complete, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So on top of that, he gives this big feast to end it all. And anybody's invited, if you lived in Susa, the the citadel. So it wasn't just for royal officials, just the average Joe could come. If you lived there in that day, you would have been able to go to the, the court of the king. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Buckingham Palace if they just invited all the commoners? Oh, the queen would have a heart attack, wouldn't she, if all the people came in? But that's what he was doing. He was showing off his splendor, okay? And uh, the king is drinking, as the king tends to do. And he decides he wants to show off his queen. Her name is Vashti. Vashti. And so he sends for the queen. And uh, listen, the king is sovereign, okay? You're going to find this in the story. This is not a Disney kind of story, okay? This isn't like, uh, even with Esther, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more. The king is sovereign. Like if the king says, come, you come. If you don't come, that could be your life. So he summons his wife, Vashti, the queen. But she says, I've had it. I'm not coming. You're not parading me again. I'm reading in a little bit. But I sense this is what's going on. She says, I'm not doing that. Look at verse 12 of the first chapter. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Oh, boy. Ahasuerus is, he's ticked off. And he calls all of his homeboys, you know, all the advisors and everything, and they get together and say, what are we going to do about this? And they say, King, this is serious. Word's going to get out. (laughs) What happens when the word gets out? Vashti doesn't even uh, uh, obey the king. And... All, so now the, none of the women are going to obey their husbands. Man, this is, the, this is chauvinism on steroids, <laughs> this culture. Seriously, women are nothing. And this is bad. The, the women are all going to revolt. What, so he, King's going, what should we do? And so they come up with this edict. And it says this, first of all, Vashti shall never be in the king's presence again. Now some think, maybe we don't know this for sure, but that, some think that was... That was it for her. But at the very least, she was banished. She was disposed as queen, and a new queen is going to replace Vashti. And then they said, include this in the edict. Let every man be master in his own household. (laughs) Uh 
When if Congress passed a law like that, what that, that, would, that would really go over well, wouldn't it? But that's the, listen, that's the culture. You have to understand. That's where this is at. And then a decision is made. We're, this is how we're going to pick the new queen. The advisors came up with this and said, why don't you get, uh, you know, there's 127 provinces. Let's send out and we'll get women from all the different provinces and we'll bring them together in this harem in Susa. And you'll be able to find out which one will have like a contest. It's like the early version of The Bachelor. And we're going to have this contest. Like, and whoever you pick then, she'll be the queen. And the king says, hey, I like that idea. So that's exactly what happens. And so now in the story, there's, this is when two new characters are introduced into the story. Okay, Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So he was one of those. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. So in other words, uh, Mordecai and Esther are actually cousins. But I take it there's kind of an age difference between them. And Mordecai is older, and he becomes the father figure for Esther and takes care of her. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So on a scale of 1 to 10, Esther's a 20. I told Linda after the service, she's a 25, okay? But... uh, It says, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took, care, took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, Esther was also taken. So these people come out, Esther is noticed, she's taken. Notice this. <laughs> she's taken. It's not like a choice. You don't get a choice in this. This is the culture. Now, Mordecai had told her, Esther, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. Okay, we're subjugated people. That, that may not work in your favor. So just keep that a secret. So keep that in your mind. Now, all the women then that they gathered from all these providences go under this 12-month beautification process. The first uh, six months, it's uh, oil of myrrh. Uh, what is it called? Oil of uh, myrrh. Oil of myrrh. I call it oil of olay. They, for six months, they're rubbing oil of Olay on them every day. And then for the next six months, they had other kind of spices and stuff they did. And can you imagine a 12-month beautification process? Guys, think about that when, when your wife is taking too much time in the bathroom getting ready. You know, it's like, it's not like 12 months, you know. It's not, you know. So Mordecai's keeping tabs on all this that's going on. It's a long time, 12 months. You know, he's kind of keeping the tabs on things. And after the 12 months, all of the women have a turn coming in before Queen Ahasuerus, excuse me, King Ahasuerus. And guess who the king is smitten with? Yeah. Chapter 2, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. A great feast is given. Taxes are rescinded throughout the provinces. I mean, come on, rejoice people. We have a new queen. 
But again, this isn't a Disney character queen. Esther is very subservient to the king. In fact, she cannot even come into his presence unless she's summoned. And no one could come into the king's presence unless they are summoned. If you did so, you could die. If the king held up his scepter to you, you were allowed to enter, touch his scepter, and then you could talk. But if the king, if you came into his presence and he did not summon you, that could be the end of you. Keep that in mind. Well, in the story, there's now this little side plot that's happened. Esther has been chosen as the queen. Mordecai's sitting out by the gate. It's called the king's gate. And he is in a position where he overhears two of the king's servants plotting against the king to kill him. And so he gets word to Esther, sends a message to her through, through a messenger. And Esther takes it to the king. The matter is investigated, found to be true. The two men are discovered and the plot is real. Those two men are taken and hanged. And then what, what is done next is something you need to keep in your memory banks. The king and the kingdom have this book called the Book of the Chronicles that different deeds of note have to, are noted in there. And they write down in that book what Mordecai had done. So Mordecai discovered so-and-so and so-and-so was plotting against them. The matter was investigated. It was found to be true. So-and-so and so-and-so was executed, and the king was spared. And that's written in that book, okay? That takes place that, right then. Then a new character is introduced to the story. Hang in there. His name is Haman. Haman is the up-and-coming guy in the kingdom. He's rising in power. He's rising in status. In fact, at this point, he is placed in charge over all of the king's officials. So he's second only to the king. He's in charge. And listen, Haman's full of himself. He's just full of, you know. The king, he's even more full of himself when the king says to all the officials, when you see Haman go past the, city, the king's gate outside, whenever you see him, you have to bow down. And so the officials, whenever Haman would walk by, they all bow down. But guess who that didn't sit well with? Mordecai. And Mordecai did not bow down. And Haman, who's full of himself, is enraged at this Mordecai. And he wants to kill him. And he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all the Jews. Listen. This should not be so far-fetched to any of us who have lived in the era of the Holocaust, that this could enter the mind of someone. And this is what he plans to do. Now, he's superstitious, and he wants to pick a, a, a day ordained by the gods or whatever that he can carry out this plot. And so he casts pure, P-U-R. The plural is purim, P-U-R-I-M. It means lots. He's casting lots, somehow trying to determine. He probably cast lots over and over, yes, this month or this month. And then he would cast to see which one was chosen. And then he'd start to limit, okay, not that month. Let's put these other months in. And he finally does that. Then he goes for what day? And after he cast lots, what, however this worked, it was determined that he would carry out this plot on the 13th day of the 12th month. Now that's some months away. Providentially. Tell you about that. That's some months away. But he knows this. He knows he needs the king's permission to carry out this plot. So he comes into the king, Haman. 
And he says, King, they, pro- I could picture it. I know how these, I don't know. I suspect I know how this happens. They're drinking. And Haman's very stealthy about it. He doesn't mention the Jews as a people group. He says, oh, king, oh, by the way, there's this people in your kingdom. You know, and listen, remember, this is 120, 127 provinces, Ethiopia, India, over, you know, there's a lot. He said, oh, there's this insignificant people, but they're a pain, king. You know, they don't, they don't follow your rules. They, don't, they have a different customs. And listen, it would not even be profitable to you to keep the run. He's basically saying, you know, they don't provide much taxes. They're not worth anything. If it please the king, let me do away with them. We'll be rid of them, and then we'll just, you know. And the king, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, he doesn't even explore that as far as the text tells us. He says, okay, you do with them what you want to do. And so this edict is made up. This edict goes out that in all the provinces with the king's royal seal on it, announcing that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every man, woman, child of the Jewish heritage is to be exterminated. And it's sent out with the king's seal. The last verse of chapter 15 says, and the king and Haman sat down to drink some more, (laughs) but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Can you imagine? When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes. That's a sign of mourning in the Jewish faith. And he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And then through one of the eunuchs, he gets word to Esther and he sends with that eunuch a copy of the edict. And he says, Esther, you've got to go to the king. You've got to go to the king and plead for his help. Esther sends back and says, I have not been in the king's presence for 30 days. He has not summoned me. I can't just go into his presence. And then through messenger, Mordecai says these words to her. Do not think to yourself, Esther, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther sends word back and says, I'm going to fast for three days. Mordecai, fast for three days with me. Tell all the Jewish people in Susa to fast. And then she says, These words, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I was thinking just a little bit, you know, just to put in context, I don't know, the Bible doesn't give us every detail about King Ahasuerus, what kind of person he is, or man, but I'm not going to liken him to Kim Jong-un of North Korea, but it's kind of a similar situation. I, recently on the news, I've, I heard about how some of the diplomats of North Korea have been executed. He actually executed his own half-brother. And I'm not saying that uh, Ahasuerus is that treacherous as to compare to that. But in a sense, that's the feel you have in this kingdom. If the king is not pleased, if the king, you go against him, your life can be snuffed out like that. So for her to say, I just don't want you to 
I want you to think about what she just said. I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. This could mean my life. It could be over tomorrow. So after the three-day fast, Esther put on her royal clothes, and she came and she stood before King Ahasuerus. And the Bible says this, chapter 5, verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. <sighs> Can you imagine the relief she felt in that moment? I'm not going to die today. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? In other words, what would cause you? You know the law. You can't just come without, I didn't summon you. What would be so serious to you that you would risk your own life to tell me what it is you want? I'll give it to you up to half the kingdom. And Esther says, well, king, I want, first of all, you and Haman to come to a banquet, a feast that I'm going to make for you today. And the king says, done. He summons Haman. They attend the feast with Esther. And after they had eaten, king, the king asks her again, now what is your request? And Esther again says, I want to have another feast tomorrow. And that's when I'll tell you my request. Now that sounds strange to us. I don't know how she came. You know, there's no reasoning given for what she did. But... Um, what happens in that delay of 24 hours is very important to the story. So that's what happens. Uh, Haman leaves. The feast is set for tomorrow at her request. Haman goes home. He's flying high. He's doing a strut. You know, he gets, I'm sorry. This, this, you, know, you can't put in what God left out, but I'm doing my best. Okay, I'm doing my, doing my best up here. He gets home. He says, you won't believe how good life is for me right now. You can't believe how good I... You know what? I just came from a feast. It was me, the king, and Esther, the queen. And you know what? The queen's having another feast tomorrow. You know who's going to be there? The queen, the king, and me. Me. Emphasis on me. Seriously, he's, he, he's like, he can't believe this. But he said, there's one problem. I was, and the, his wife says, what's that? Well, I was walking home, thinking of how great my life's going. And I went past the city gate, and everybody bowed. And there was that stinky, lousy Mordecai Jew. And he didn't bow. And I know we set the date of 12, 13th day of the 12th month, but I can't wait that long for that Blankety, blankety, blank. I'm going to, I want to kill him now. And his wife says, what are you all upset about? You're second to the king, you know what I mean? Build a gallows and make it 75 foot high and then early in the morning go and talk to the king and say, this guy needs to go. And, and, and Haman says, that's a good idea. And so he says, build it. So right that instant, they're out there building. The wood's going up, the gallows are being built. But listen, that very night, that very night, the king 
could not sleep. The king could not sleep. What do you do when you can't sleep? Sometimes you just lay there and you toss and turn. Sometimes it's really bad and you say, I'm getting up. And you read a book, right? Or you read something. Hopefully I'll get tired. And the king can't sleep and he calls his servants in. And he says, bring me that book of the Chronicles of the notable deeds of the kingdom and read it to me. Guess what story they read? (laughs) There you go. So they're reading to him, Mordecai discovers so-and-so-and-so-and-so had plotted and we discovered it. It was found to be true. They were executed. Oh, king, you were saved. He saved you from that plot. And the king says to his servants, have we done anything for this guy? Have we honored him in any way for what he's done? And they said, no, we haven't done anything. Now morning comes, and just then Haman struts in. And he wants to ask the king for permission to kill Mordecai. But before he can do that, the king asks him a question. Listen to it in in Esther chapter 6. The king says to Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Listen to this phrase. And Haman, it's not in here, but who's full of himself, (laughs) said to himself, well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Me. And so he starts thinking he's writing his own blank check. And he says to the king, For the man, O king, that you delight to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden on, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. (sighs) And then the king said to Haman, that's a great plan. Now go and do everything that you've just said to Mordecai the Jew. What? Now listen, he's in a, what's he going to say? No? You going to tell the king no? Try to explain that one. He's off with your head now. And he's the noble official that has to robe and dress Mordecai in the king's robe and help Mordecai on the king's horse and go through the city saying, and thus shall it be done for the man the king wants to honor. That is Haman's job. So that happens, and Haman runs back to his home. He's he's beyond humiliated. This is the biggest piece of humble pie that anybody, this is like a, it's the biggest piece anybody's ever eaten. And he starts to tell his wife and his friends what's transpired. Oh, my goodness. They're even saying, oh, my goodness. If, they, if the king has shown Mordecai this, you're, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> Thanks, wife. Appreciate that. That's why dog is man's best friend in these situations. <laughs> Just at this moment, the king's servants arrive to escort Haman to the Esther's feast. He can't even get out of it. Have you ever tried to eat when your stomach's churning? 
you know, when you're so nervous and upset. Can you imagine getting through that meal? And right after the meal, the king says, okay, Esther, what is your request? Well, king, she says, here's my request. I want you to help protect me from a man who's trying to kill me, not only me, but all of my people as well. Chapter 7, verse 5, the king says, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, It's a foe and an enemy. Then she pointed her hand, right? This wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. You think? His acid indigestion just got a lot worse. (laughs) The king is so taken back that his trusted official, who he'd raised up, would betray him in this way and actually seek the life of his queen, his wife. He actually leaves the room to wrap his mind around this. And this is when Haman goes berserk. He doesn't... He doesn't even know what he's doing. He starts begging Esther for his life. To, oh, Esther, please tell the king, don't kill me, don't kill me. And he gets, keeps getting closer and closer to her. At last, he throws himself on her. She's on a couch. He throws himself on top of her. And guess who walks back in the room just as he's draped over, his, uh, over Esther? The king walks back in the room. And, it's, and he says this, chapter 7, verse 8, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, said to the king, Moreover, this guy made a gallows over by his house. He was going to kill Mordecai on it. The one who had helped you, king. The one who saved you against that plot. And the king just goes, Take him and hang him on that gallows. He was hung on his own gallows that he had made for Mordecai. Friends, I'll just summarize the end of the story, and we'll make some applications. We'll be done. After Haman is killed, all of Haman's property, possessions, land, was given to Queen Esther, who gives that to Mordecai, and she reveals to the king the relationship between herself and Mordecai. Moreover, there's a different edict that the first one is rescinded and a new edict which allows the Jews to defend themselves against any enemy that may want to destroy them. They are empowered through the king to defend themselves and that's exactly what they do. And instead of the Jewish people being exterminated, they were blessed and God preserved them. Isn't that a powerful story? Isn't that a... Let's take a few lessons from it and then we'll, we'll, we'll call it quits here today. The first application is that God is moving providentially in the world. It's a message that this story speaks of God's providence. What do we mean by that? Sometimes God moves in visible, visibly miraculous ways. Red seas are parted. Storms are calmed. Uh, water is turned into wine, people are raised from the dead, that kind of thing. He's moved in Bible history that way. But he doesn't always work that way. In fact, I I would like to say more in our time, he moves providentially. 
It's still miraculous. It's just not as visibly miraculous. But he, what I mean by that is he ranges things. He causes circumstances to go a certain way. He causes certain people to act in a certain way. They're not puppets. He uses their own, this is so big for me, how God can, but he, he orchestrates history and events and people to carry out his purposes. It's seen over and over in the story. What made Vashti stand up to the king at that particular time? She'd probably been paraded dozens of times. She finally came to the point, this is it, I'm done. Well, it led to a new queen needing to be picked. What made those uh, officials decide on this contest? Esther wouldn't have been picked. She wouldn't have been uh, considered. Uh, she had no influence, no circle. If they had just gone like on the inside, a few other queen potentials, you know. You know? But that's, that's God's providence. Esther is just the fact that she was noticed. You know, this isn't like you, you, you put your picture on the internet and they kind of looked at you like you could apply for the job, you know. <laughs> No, Esther had to be noticed by the people in a province. Somehow they had to connect. And that's what was done. Mordecai, what, why was it him that was in proximity to hear these two guys and not be discovered? Maybe he was right around the corner or something. He heard it. And these two guys thought they were... Why was it him? Why wasn't it somebody else? Can I say it was God's providence? It's God providentially working. And then once this plot is sent into motion, you see the timing. Don't you see how the timing of things is providentially ordained by God? You know, the fact that the king can't sleep that particular night, the very night that, that Haman's going to come and ask the next morning for Mordecai to be killed, the fact that, that uh, he discovers that nothing had been done for Mordecai, and Haman comes and he asks, he talks to Haman, to Haman first. Haman can't get a word out. And the king says, what should be done for the man whom I wish to honor? The timing of it. What about the timing of him lunging on Esther just as the king comes in? Not that I think his fate wasn't sealed anyhow, but that certainly, uh, that, took, that took the cake. Listen, God works invisibly powerful miracles, but sometimes, most times, especially in our day, he's working providentially. He's working through circuit. He's working through circuit. You're not here by accident today. He, he's orchestrating circumstances in your life. Believe that. It also tells me this, when everything seems helpless and hopeless, it's not. When you think God doesn't care or he doesn't see you, he does see you. And when it seems that evil will prevail, it won't. At just the right moment, when the fullness of time had come, Paul wrote to the Galatians, God sent forth his son. What does that mean? When all the geopolitical things were aligned, just the way God knew it had to be, for Messiah to come, for Messiah to die. He sent his son just at the right, when he had planned from eternity past, God is, works by providential movings. Secondly, we have responsibility. The fact that God moves providentially does not excuse us from being responsible Divine sovereignty and human responsibility go together. You know, Ezra, excuse me, Ezra, Esther 
and Mordecai weren't going around just saying, Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. So just, what I'm saying is, they had responsibilities. And in this story, they show great initiative and courage in taking steps of faith. When Mordecai learns of the threat to the king, he does the right thing. He reports it. When he hears of the edict of Haman, what does he do? He contacts Esther, says, you have to go to the king. In other words, why not just say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. He's, he works providentially. i see what he comes up with next. They still acted in ways that were consistent with what they could do. And friends, I just want you to say, I just want to say to you, we are called to live by faith. Even Esther calling upon uh, everyone to fast. You know, the, the name God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther directly. There's no mention of God. But he's seen all over the place. And why would Esther fast? Why would she call for a fast? What good is fasting if you're not? Fasting is a positioning yourself to say, God, more than I need food, I need you right now. And I'm coming to you. So they're acting by faith. Even, even Mordecai saying, you know, if you don't do this, the Jews are going to be delivered some other way. Doesn't that take faith? He says, somehow God's going to help us. But we're, not, we're responsible. Thirdly, I just want you to remember the phrase, for such a time as this. It's not by accident you are who you are. That God has made you who you are. That you've experienced what you've experienced. That you're gifted the way that you're gifted. That you've suffered the way you've suffered. God can use that providentially in his kingdom work. And he's saying for such a time of this, as this, would you follow me? Hope Church has been raised up in Brunswick, Ohio for such a time as this. This uh, September we'll celebrate 10 years as a church in Brunswick, Ohio. Do you think God has not worked providentially through all the good, all the bad? Do you think he, his plans for us are ended? Do you think he gave us this cactus steakhouse, this bingo hall, and this auto parts store? Do you think that just happened? you think that that's human ingenuity? Do you think that's talent of leadership? No. It's God moving providentially in this city. And he's called us as his people to let people know in this community what a great God he is. And what he's done for them. Not everyone's going to believe. But some are going to believe. If we will take seriously the fact that we've been raised up for such a time as this. And lastly, we win in the end. I actually, uh, the slide was already done. It should say God wins in the end. We're just included in that blessing. God wins in the end. You know, the, the Jews celebrate a feast even to this day, the Feast of Purim. Have you heard of it? And this is what they celebrate, the deliverance of the Jewish people from the plot of Haman. And they also add to that throughout the centuries, those who've wanted to destroy them and how God has preserved them. And so they have this feast called the Feast of Purim. And folks, I want to tell you, there's even a better feast coming. It's going to involve men and women 
of every race, of every background, Jewish, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles. And we're going to gather around, and it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a banquet to end all banquets. Uh, you know, Asuerus, uh, his banquet will look like McDonald's. Like a cheeseburger. Wait, wait till you get to the banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we'll rejoice for the great deliverance that Jesus Christ has given us from the peril of our sins. Friends, think about this story of Esther. Think about the fact that God is working providentially. Understand that you are responsible to live in a godly way. Make godly decisions, godly choices. Remember that you're raised up for such a time as this. It's not all about me. It's about God and his glory. And remember, someday a great feast is coming. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the story of Esther. I, uh, I'm overwhelmed sometimes about how powerful you are, that you can arrange all of human history and without sacrificing in people's free will and using that will. It's, this is so big for me, God, that, that even now this world's not out of control. You're orchestrating events and circumstances to someday usher in the return of your son, Jesus Christ. What a powerful and awesome God you are. Help us to remember that you move in providential ways and to trust in that and to act accordingly. Give us hearts that want to follow you and obey you and act appropriately to your, your glory and honor. And Lord, thank you that you have called each of us individually and collectively as a church to be raised up for such a time as this in our spheres of influence and in our community that we live in. And God, we want people to know that there's a God so great as you are. So please, use us. Whatever sacrifice it might take, personally or corporately, would we be willing to say like Esther, I'll go, I'll do it. If I suffer, I suffer. If it costs me, I'll do it anyhow. If it, if it takes away from what I think is pleasurable, but it's going to honor God, I'll do it. And Lord, thank you that someday there's a great feast prepared, a banquet, a celebration for the greatest deliverance that all other deliverances point to in the Bible. The destruction that would have come to every one of us because of our sin. Oh God, we love you. We glorify you. And we worship you this day. Let this message impact us, God. Please, for your glory I pray. Amen.